What's up? This is the You Are Not Listening to This Podcast. My name is Will James. And, uh, as I say, there's no host to this. I'm not the host of this podcast. There's no guests. There's no point. I just rant about things or I find a weird thought and follow the rabbit hole. And I was thinking about... First off, all of these, no matter where they start, end up religious. So just heads up. But I was thinking about how words change meaning and take on new meanings over time based on how you know, people that speak your language and live in your culture and society use them. There's a term a term in the English American parlance of a nimrod and a nimrod is an idiot a dumb person a not smart guy you call someone a nimrod when they're doing something dumb and what's interesting about that there's a guy in the bible who uh, I believe is in charge of building the Tower of Babel, maybe? His name is Nimrod. <clears throat> and what's funny is Nimrod means hunter. Not dumb person, idiot, buffoon. It means hunter. Nimrod was a hunter. That's what the word and name means. Side note, the fact that many, if not most, of the major characters in biblical stories, names happen to be what they do or what they'll be known for. I mean, that's a sign to you right there. Um, So anyway, Nimrod is a hunter. And the reason Nimrod became an idiot is Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny, in his old cartoons, would call Elmer Fudd a Nimrod. Say, you know, he'd call him Nimrod. You Nimrod. That Nimrod. Whatever. And the, con- the, the tone that Bugs Bunny would use when he would call Elmer Fudd a Nimrod connoted the idea that Elmer Fudd was dumb or bumbling or whatever. But you have to look at it from the bunny's perspective. Bugs Bunny is a bunny. Elmer Fudd kills bunnies. He's a hunter. So Bugs Bunny calling a hunter a hunter with disdain in his voice as a being that doesn't want to be hunted makes a lot of sense. We didn't know what Nimrod meant. We just heard how Bugs Bunny used it. Precisely what I was wondering, my little Nimrod. And literally all Americans now, not everyone uses the word, but when they do, they think idiot. Whether they watched Bugs Bunny cartoons or not, Because we adopted how he used it and used it how we thought he was using it. And now that's what it means. Words change meaning over time depending on how you use them. It's wild, right? Like that, (laughs) to me, is very interesting. And so I was thinking about that in a bunch of different ways 
and how time you know moves on and things take on meanings. So when you're dealing with a, a book like the Bible, there are obvious instances, and there have to be, where similar things that occur. You know, a term is used a certain way in the Bible. From analyzing old texts, we can determine well this word means this, and it's weird that they used it that way, but whatever. And it just it you know it takes on a whole life of its own. And so what we have it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what that can mean over thousands and thousands of years of how words can shift just a little bit. So when you're going through translations. Meanings can diverge entirely from any point. Don't waste your time freaking out about that existentially. <laughs> um, I was talking to some friends. I talked to my mom about this first, and then uh, some friends out at a pub theology deal about how honoring thy father and thy mother as a Ten Commandment, effectively, like in in an in an ancient society like that would have meant to take care of your elderly. You know, you're a farming culture or a hunter gatherer, wanderers, whatever you're doing. You kind of age out of the effective working zone. You, you depend on someone to take care of you effectively. And so this idea of honoring your father and your mother was to take care of them in their old age, as they took care of you in your young age. And then if you do that and your children see the example you're setting, uh, you'll live longer. Your days will be longer because you'll be taken care of. You won't be left as an invalid on the side of the road to die of starvation because you can't find food for yourself. You'll be cared for. And that, that's what that meant. Yet when, you know, I was a kid, uh, honoring your father and your mother meant obeying your parents, doing what they told you to do. And I, I think that's interesting. I'm sure it, it might have always also meant some phase or area or degree of that. But, you know, it would, it would actually be weird in that time frame when you're talking about getting your instruction from the Torah or uh, the Tanakh in full. You know that's where you, you, you know that the scriptures and your rabbinical line would be kind of where you look to obey. The, I don't know that the idea that your parents were going to be upright, good, godly people as the default was always an assumption to be made. You know, so like, uh, so this turn into obey your parents is cultural like the that idea is a societal change like that's what we do and that that's what lots of societies do i'm not limiting it i'm saying okay so in the original meaning what what did we do as a society that decided look we're going to hold these scriptures as uh valuable whether people are you know quote-unquote christian or not like you understand that a lot of Abrahamic traditional beliefs have infiltrated popular society at large, even what you might call secular, though. I think secular is a false term. 
as a culture, we have an American society, I shouldn't say culture, as a government system of states. We have Social Security, we have Medicaid, we have retirement villages and communities all over the place. There is, we've instituted as part of both the economy and governmental processes the idea of taking care of people when they are too old to take care of themselves or to, or find themselves unable to take care of themselves due to their age. Like it's, we've built it in to how life works now. Maybe it doesn't always work great. You know, you don't always hear the best things about all the retirement villages or whatever, but in theory, you know, you have these things and then, and then you have within American society, other subcultures like the African American culture, or at least my family's culture or everyone I can imagine of, um, are pretty anti retirement villages and stuff. And it's just grandma and grandpa, end up with one of the the kids, you know, like that you are literally taking them in. If you don't take them somewhere else and leave them on their own, uh, if you can avoid it. And that's kind of the, the deal. And usually it's because, you know, our community has been less able to pay for good care for the elderly. So we've done it on our own, but like, we main we maintain that as a societal norm. It's a family value. We don't tie it to religion. Sometimes you might honor your father and your mother. You might throw that out there as a reason for it, but it's almost secondary. So we we instituted following that commandment into how we operate in life in theory. And then change the meaning of the commandments to still have ten, but to fit what we would need or think we would need in a society that views itself as Christian and centered around the nuclear family. Because I, I know family is always important, right? But it's like the nuclear family. Sounds like a positive thing. We obviously, your nuclear family is very, very important. But by emphasizing the nuclear, you are pointing out how your neighbors and everybody else not family, and even your grandparents and like nieces and nephews and cousins and aunts and uncles aren't like family like that. You know, like you're elevating a thing as opposed to just emphasizing the importance of a thing. And I think other cultures that I wouldn't say that they don't, they aren't nuclear centric, but it's, you know, it's everybody. It's the whole thing. It's the whole village. It's the whole town. It's the whole people. It's the whole whatever. So the, the, like, again, obeying your parents wouldn't be as important to them because there's elders everywhere to straighten you out. Obey all the old people. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, It's just interesting that, you know, there's such a, um, uh, an emphasis placed on obedience to the law, obeying the commandments. And we've allowed for these random little changes in what they mean. Because words change meaning over time based on how they're used.
groups of words that are commonly lumped together in summary form change the meaning of the unabridged version of each of those sets of words over time as those summary forms are used as well. Like it's one of those things like you've probably noticed that the way you view the Christmas story, for instance, uh, isn't exactly how it's written. Because most of our Christmas stories, the way we view the Christmas story, comes from either a book that tells the Christmas story, but is not literally the Gospels, or a cartoon we watched a bunch as a kid, or a film you watched maybe on Sabbaths, if you had to find 24 hours to fill, if you're one of, one of us, where you, you get this idea where a bunch of parts of the Gospels are spliced together to tell you everything that all the four Gospels, t- well, they don't all four talk about uh, the birth, but everything's worked in there. So you get this idea of, well, there's the shepherds and the star and the manger and the baby and the wise men. And you have this chain of events that if you actually go back through the gospels, you're like, oh, like these are different. There were years in between this and that. And, you know, like the, um, because we have taken a summary of a way of telling all the accounts into one story, we popularize that summary and then feel as though that's what the Bible says. And the first couple of chapters of Genesis are similar. Where we read Genesis 1 and 2. And for a lot of us, particularly fundamentalists, Genesis 1 and 2 is one story. Here's a creation story. Days 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 alludes to the 7th. Then in chapter 2, we go back to day 6 and go into further detail. And so Genesis 1 and 2 are telling you the first six days of the world. Uh, However long you want those days to last is up to you, uh, leading to the 7th being the Sabbath. Or really the, the, the commemoration of the ending of creation. And that's all fine and good, but... When you go through life knowing that's what Genesis 1 and 2 is, then that's what you see when you read Genesis 1 and 2, even when reading Genesis 1 and 2 tells you, like the words themselves, tell you you're wrong. Like they're not the same story. It's not a zooming in on day six. Genesis 2 is an entirely different story than Genesis 1. But we've evolved that over time. And I, I think that's interesting. Like, I don't think, I don't know. I'm not a biblical scholar. I'm just a nerd who researches these things extensively. And I don't fully know what I could tell you I thought a first century person in Jerusalem would have thought of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Or a much earlier ancient Hebrew who was passing it on as oral tradition? What you know? How do they view those two things? I can tell you that 
there is a lot of scholarly work done that seems to suggest that Genesis 1 is a standalone story. Well, 1 through chapter 2, verse 4, half of verse 4, because the chapters and verses, they were added in later. There was no divisions originally. Just a long flowing text that people that have already decided what a lot of this stuff means theologically or whatever, then go in and added punctuation and chapters and verses. So reading things as chapters and verses already shows you that it's been interpreted through a lens. Choices were already made just to present it to you in that fashion. Let alone how you know paragraph headings and things change when you go from translation to translation, where it's like, this is telling you what the next several verses is about. Like That's a choice. Like There's no <laughs> headings in ancient Hebrew manuscripts. That's... People decided what they were reading in light of having everything else. And, and maybe they didn't. Maybe you go through, maybe you only have, nah, because whoever does that is translating the whole Bible. So they're translating the whole thing. They have an entire theological scope from Genesis to Revelation that the people that wrote Genesis didn't have because they didn't know anything about Exodus, let alone <laughs> Revelation. Uh, <laughs> so... I know what you're thinking. You're thinking Moses wrote the first five. Fine. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, So anyway, Genesis 1 through 2 verse 4, or half of verse 4, is very clearly a story that ends. Here's the creation story. Here's how God created stuff. Genesis 2 looks like a creation creation story too, but it's not the same. And this is where I think things get messy. Um... By reading one and two as one story, we, I think, miss what happened in three that led to the story being something that's rele- that was relevant to the ancient Hebrews to memorize and copy with the most deliberate, exacting precision. Uh, you know, where it was, there's this many letters in the Torah. There's this many words. The middle letter is this letter in this word. And the middle word is this word. If you're copying it and you're off, start over. They were meticulous. And when they get to the end of chapter 3, they are not looking at the fall of mankind or original sin or any of that. None of that exists in Judaism. That is a Christian idea. Like we go back and read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we're like, oh, there was paradise. It was broken. God promises to send Jesus to fix it. And so that would mean then that the Torah, the first five books, were passed around, memorized, whatever, for thousands of years. Thousands of years. Without anyone believing anything had happened to fix anything that had happened yet. And I, I think that's hard to believe. It's hard. It's different than a history book. Because it's not, you know what I mean? Like it's not, here's what happened in succinct order. I mean, a lot of people read it that way. But that's not what it is. So these aren't, this isn't a scroll of minutes at meetings 
it's different than that. It's wisdom literature. It's poetry. It's discourse and narrative, you know, and it's, it's all mixed together. And to, to keep that and to pass that like that is to assume you have an, at least some grasp of what are you supposed to be taking out of it. So to argue, okay, then now here's my point. So Genesis one creates this perfect planet. It seems, you know, God, he creates order out of chaos actually by separating waters and all this stuff. It's actually not a creation of out of nothing situation. It is order out of chaos, which is different. But, you know, we've already, again, we've already instituted our own theological understanding into what the book says. So we missed it. He doesn't say anything about creating the cosmic waters. It just separates them. But anyway, you get this perfection. The planet gets revealed. Dry land comes out. The dry land produces trees and fruit and vegetables and birds and animals, all this stuff. And it's over. You know, there's some humans. Be fruitful, multiply, go. Then Genesis 2 comes around, and you have a different scene. You just might not have noticed. So in Genesis 2, you're told that there's a place called Eden that's somewhere, some land somewhere. It's called Eden. In the east of Eden, so to one side of it, God plants a garden. So the garden is in a place called Eden. It's not the garden of Eden. It's a garden in a place called Eden. In the garden, God produces fruit trees of every kind. But outside of the garden in Genesis 2, there's a bunch of land, but there's no vegetation. There are no trees. There's no fruit. There's nothing. There's nothing to eat. It's pretty desolate out there. Why? Because it hasn't rained yet. Now, in Genesis 1, there's all kinds of production of fruit and vegetables and all that stuff. And no mention of rain. Didn't need it. Didn't need a sun for trees, even. But in Genesis 2, can't have it without rain. There hasn't been rain. Therefore, there is no vegetation. There's a river that flows out of Eden that waters the garden. And then once it leaves the garden, it splits into four. And it's, you know, So there's this river that goes. And maybe there's grass and light vegetation along the beds, you know, along the riverbed. But other than that, there's a morning dew. So maybe there's some more grass in other places. But there's really nothing going on out there. So the idea of Eden is different than the perfect paradise of Genesis 1. And the reason that's relevant is when Adam is removed from the garden after the tree incident, his punishment on the way out is that the ground will be laborious. It will, it will, he'll really struggle to produce food for himself. Because again, it doesn't rain. It doesn't rain until the flood. <laughs> okay? So 
It's like 900 and, ooh, no, it's a 1,000, nope, yeah. It's like 1,500 years before there's, there's rain, I think. I think that's how the story is unfolding. So, and so here's my point. Adam messes up, we'll say, uh, and then he's told the ground will be cursed because of you. Adam's actually not cursed for touching the tree. It's the ground. It'll be very difficult for you to grow things, which was already difficult outside of the garden anyway to grow things. That's why they were in the garden. That's why garden was where they wanted to be. That's where everything was. He leaves. They have children. Cain and Abel do their thing. Or Cain does his thing. Uh, They have Seth. Eve says, hey, I think Seth's the child that's going to fix the curse on the ground. He'll, He'll fix everything. He doesn't. All right. But then you have, what is that, Genesis 5? You have the succession of people from Adam. And mind you, Adam is told, hey, you're the ground you'll you'll struggle to pro- get production from the ground all the days of your life it's important all the days of your life so we're told in genesis 5 that adam lives 930 years that's a lot which again if i tell you i don't know if i said this before but if i tell you if you eat of this fruit in the day you eat of it you will surely die and then you live 930 years. I've sent a mixed message on exactly what your punishment was going to be for touching that fruit. Which is interesting. It's interesting, but we're, that's not what we're talking about today. So Adam supposedly, I mean, we're just going along with the narrative. It's the story. Who cares what you believe or disbelieve from the story? Just what does the story say? 930 years. His great, 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 how many great grandson, Lamech, right, is, I want to say, 56 years old when Adam dies. When he's 182 or something like that, he has Noah. So in this, in this list of men, Noah is the first person in the line of Seth to be born and named, who knows, uh, to a person in that line after Adam died. The ground will be cursed. It'll be, you will struggle all the days of your life. Lamech has Noah after Adam dies and said, names him Noah because Noah will be the one that brings an end to the curse on the ground. Then it rains a lot. In fact, those cosmic waters that were held back get dumped back in. God stops holding it back. Whole earth floods. Noah gets off the boat. God says, listen, I will no longer curse the ground because of mankind. I see now. Y'all are just straight up crazy. So I'm not going to punish the ground because y'all are crazy. Y'all are just crazy. That's how you are. I'm also not going to destroy the earth and you guys again uh, with water. I won't do that again. 
I'm going to show you this rainbow so you can trust it. Every time you see the rainbow, you can trust the rain will stop. That's a big old button on the story in Genesis 3. Okay? Noah is presented with every animal two by two to get on that boat, to run right in front of them, just like the animals were brought in pairs in front of Adam in the Garden of Eden story where he's naming them all and realizes how lonely he is because he doesn't have a partner. God tells Adam and his partner to be fruitful and multiply. It gives them dominion over the earth and the beasts, the field, blah. Noah gets off the ark. God tells Noah and his wife and sons and their wives to be fruitful and multiply and gives them dominion over the earth and the beasts of the field. The end of the flood is a third creation story. You got the first one where everything was perfect. Cool, that's a great story. Which tells you where all the big things that people used to worship came from, meaning they aren't gods. God, our God, made those things that you worship. The sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains, the beasts, Leviathan. All the things you worship and are afraid of, God made. Genesis 1. Two, different creation story. Here's a garden. It's rough outside of the garden. You want to stay in the garden. You've been removed from the garden. Everything's bad. Because y'all are outside of the garden. I've got to start over. Flood. All right, I started over. I get it. Y'all are kind of crazy. We're going to have to deal with it. Uh, But you and your family start this thing over. So the fall and original sin, all that stuff. In Judaism, I'm guessing, I didn't really check to make sure this this is where they went with it. I'm just saying this is where technically the narrative goes. Genesis 3 is resolved in Genesis 9. Does that mean there's not problems? Does that mean there was no mention or direction or coming of Jesus? No, I'm not saying all that. I'm just saying, I'm not even saying that the, the he'll crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. I'm not saying that's not about Jesus. If you want that to be about Jesus, fine. But whoever wrote it down didn't think it was about Jesus. I don't know what they thought it was about. Well, they didn't think it was about Jesus. They didn't know who Jesus was. They had no idea. Let us make man in our image, which we commonly now are like, oh, that's the Trinity. It's God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. John told us that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. In him, all things were created, you know, all that. Without him, there's nothing, that whole thing. So Jesus was the creative force at let there be light. That's all fine and good, but nobody before John was saying that. And so whoever was like, Genesis 1 needs to be passed down forever. When they said, let us make man in our image, they weren't thinking Jesus. They weren't. They wrote it down. They passed it along. They weren't thinking about Jesus. How could they? But words change their meaning over time based on how people in your society use them. It's wild.
I feel like I said I spent five years in Genesis, and I feel like that sounded like an exaggeration. I really think I undersold it. I adore scripture. I really do. And not from the, um, you know, I found the love of Jesus through the Bible, so that's why. I mean, no, I'm not cheesy like that. Uh, I like it. I, I, I like it because... There's no reason for it to still exist. Like none. There's no reason for. So if you, if you, if you lump all the Abrahamic religions together, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, that's like two thirds of the planet. I know Hinduism, Buddhism are big. Uh, but the Abrahamic religions have like a stronghold on the world based on the common literature and for billions of people over thousands of years to hold the same group of writings in uh, like really high esteem to, to keep and maintain and um, uh, give authority to, to frame governments around societies around i mean it's that's wild like you know what i mean like no there's no what if the whole world was centered around a a way of thinking pulled out of moby dick that'd be weird right and moby dick's classic literature but you're not like living your life according to the code of uh ishmael or ahab or the fucking fish uh, you know, like you're, <laughs> it's just not something you're doing. So like, even if you don't believe in inspiration or don't believe in anything other than what you can see and touch and taste and smell here, it's still a very interesting thing that this book is there. And that so many people care about it, so many people look at it, and there's billions of different interpretations of it in every way and sense of that word. And yet, if you can base your weird perspective on something in there, like people will give you a platform to say your piece because of how much authority we give to the Bible in general. It's like, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with them, but he was quoting from Scripture. It sounded interesting. I listened to it. You listen to this, no reason to do that. But I mean, if you're here, you heard me say a bunch of random stuff that I just picked up on, rolling through, flipping through the pages. But I'm not trained in it. I don't know Hebrew. Now, I've looked at it in Hebrew. Like, the internet's a crazy place. You can see anything on the internet. So you can have it pulled up, and you know there it is in the original Hebrew, like an old codex with numbers on it. You can trace where that thing was found. And then next to it, here's the in- translation in English. Still reads right to left for you and everything of uh, of what it says. You know, so I, I've looked at things, but I do not know what I'm talking about. I think 
not reading it would just be weird. You know? Now, I need people to read it a little less seriously. You need to hold it a little less tight. Uh, you know? Unclench. You feel me? <laughs> uh, let's Let's hold it up to the light and twist it around a little bit and see what we see. Let's not uh, grab it with two hands and hit each other in the face. Uh, words change meaning over time. You might have an argument with someone right now that says, well, I believe the Bible says this. And you're like, well, you know, but the character of Jesus would point to this. And you see it, you hear their point. You're like, I, I get that. I just don't know. Cause I don't see it in here. Well, words change meaning over time. You might be at the the edge where it's time for those words to mean something else. And that resistance you feel is natural because of the authority and the the pedestal that you've put those words on. But you've already let a bunch of them change meaning over time. You just didn't know that's what you were doing. So why stand in the way of spirit when this is what it does? I don't know. But I'm going to let you go because it's been a, a minute. And I, as always, I appreciate anyone that got to the end of this. Uh, oh! It just started storming hard out of nowhere. <laughs> We're under a tornado watch, so I'm going to shut this puppy down. Anyway, I love you even though I don't know you. As I always say, this is the You Are Not Listening to This podcast.